Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. All right, friends, before we get to the Mailbag Podcast, let me tell you about the Pepperdine Bible Lectures. This is an event that you've heard me talk about just about every year because it's an event that I go to every year. It's a great event that I hope you join me at this year. It's May 2nd through May 5th in Malibu, California at Pepperdine University. Now, this year, they've got some outstanding speakers that are going to be presenting. We've got our friend... Pete Enns, who's like on the show all the time, and we all love him. So he'll be there. Suzanne Stabile, like Miss I Know Everything About the Enneagram and Can Change Your Life, she'll be there doing three sessions with our friend Josh Graves. Uh, Bob Goff, who if you don't know, like he's the most friendly and happy, most positive person in the world. I'm like 99% sure he's a seven on the Enneagram, in case you're wondering. Um, That's free. So... Anyway, those people will be there. I'm actually doing live podcasts every night, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. Uh, I've got some cool stuff in store that I think you're going to want to be a part of. And so come join me in Malibu, California, May 2nd through May 5th. And I think you'll enjoy it. All right. It's on to the mailbag. All right, friends, it's time for the March Mailbag Podcast. We're recording this on a Saturday. I don't usually do a podcast on Saturday. That's family time. We don't put the podcast before family time. But we had a little incident. Our friend Walter Brueggemann came down with the flu. So he said, let's push this back a little while. And so we had to fast track the old podcast with the mailbag questions up to this one. And so, you know what, we're kind of going outside my normal boundaries, but boundaries are important. You got to keep them. You got to separate family life from work life. You got to separate your time, me tea, as I call it, me tea. I don't actually call it that, just my time. That's, I'm I'm sitting in my bedroom just talking to myself right now. So you're going to get some weird stuff like this, but that's what a, a mailbag is all about. We're answering questions uh, we're doing some riffs. We've got some good stuff to get to. And our very first one we're going to get to uh, makes it a little weird himself. Another Texan who decides he's going to get a little Australian on us. So here's our very first question for the Mailbag Podcast. G'day, mate. Let's talk a little cook god I don't know what that and is. And I will stop talking like that immediately. This is Randall from Fort Worth, Texas. Just wanted to say thanks for the podcast. It is... A lane of the bridge that connects traditional and progressive Christianity. Yes. Yeah, we'll go with that. Luke, I'm grateful. Keep up the good work. Peace. Thank you, uh, my friend, for that uh, that mess. I don't know if it's a question. Uh, it kind of sounds like a uh, Trip Fuller slash Jonathan Stormont question, uh, which is more a statement than an actual question. But your comment... It's greatly appreciated. That's kind of what I want the podcast to be. I want it to be something that uh, connects people from traditional and progressive, from conservative and liberal, from all over the map and say, hey, we can, we can all be friends because we're all in this together. Uh, let me tell you a little secret. I've got this thing that I always have that runs through my head when I'm in airports, especially because in airports you see this 
more than other places. But you see the people who have like the face mask thing going on, like the uh, like the medical mask you wear like in an ER situation. And there are obviously some people who are rocking the masks because they need to. Like they've got cancer, they've got some serious illness. But you know there are some people who rock the masks just because they don't want the germs. And so they're wearing these masks through the airport. And I've got this this desire, which maybe one day I'll do, if not Actually, I, I might I might do this at some point, but I, I see these people with the masks, and I want to walk over to them. I want to rip the mask off their face and give them a big kiss on the mouth and say, hey, we're all in this together. You can't hide from germs because we're all in this germ-infested airport together. We're all in this germ-filled tube flying through the air like birds in the sky, sharing our germs with one another because that's the human experience. We're all in this together. And while I'm not going to rip off a mask and give someone a kiss because they're a Calvinist, uh, I do hope the podcast can represent people who can disagree without being disagreeable, people who can uh, find ways to work towards the commonality instead of just the differences. And I don't think that leads to this soft sort of sentimental view where you can't have like intelligent discussions and debate over ideas uh, where you can't disagree over the way someone interprets text or, or certain uh, ideological or theological premises, but you don't have to be a jerk about it. Like we, we can all do this together. And uh, so, yeah, I, I appreciate the uh, the comment that I would love for the podcast to be this bridge, um, part of the bridge. We just want a little lane in the bridge because I'm not doing this on my own. There's a lot of people who are doing this before me. I didn't I didn't start start this process. It's been going. I mean, the world's been turning since the world's been burning. So this has been going on for a while. But um, yeah, and, and I do think that is, that isn't always experienced, the sense of uh, like commonality with internet Christianity or internet religion in, in general. Uh, often the way that uh, internet kind of leaders whether it's a, a blogger, a podcaster, the way they typically develop their platform and their niche is by having very polarizing topics. And, and they're not usually saying things that change people's ideas, but they express that listener's idea in a way that they haven't been able to articulate themselves. And what they're doing is they're finding uh, the things that disagree and, and that divide us, that we disagree on, and using those as a way to build their own platform. And so while it's great for the development of someone's, um, you know, their own personality and their own, you know, Instagram followers and Twitter followers and all that stuff, it it doesn't do a whole lot of good for Christianity because we, we don't need people who are making, who are profiteering off our divisions. And, Again, disagreements are going to happen, but we don't need to use those um, as a centerpiece for who we are and what uh, what defines us. Like we're not defined by you know I, I'm not a big fan of Calvinism as I've spoken of very um, very extensively in the podcast, um, but that doesn't mean I'm against Calvinists. Like that's one of the big. I, I had this conversation not too long ago about uh, someone was asking, "Hey, Luke, why why on the podcast do you talk uh, a whole lot about?" Uh, Calvinism. And I don't hear you doing that in your preaching, but I hear you doing that a lot on the podcast. And there's a reason. I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast, a, a lot of people who are part of this community are people who have grown up with some sort of conservative tr- type Christian background. And many have had their uh, their early experience being connected to something like Calvinism. And 
many people find certain tenets of Calvinism to be very um, cumbersome. Like the idea that God intentionally chooses for certain people to spend eternity in hell regardless of any choice or action they've done. And that becomes a major um, uh, impediment to someone having faith. Or the idea that all suffering, like genocide, holocaust, children being abused, uh, all, all that terrible stuff, as though that's all part of God's plan. Like God intentionally chooses for that to happen, which I, I think that is kind of a, a part of Calvinism. Calvinism has a very high view of the power and the authority that God micromanages every detail, which includes all those tragedies. And what I've found is that many people have had to choose between leaving faith uh, or leaving that way of viewing God. And if the choice is between leaving God altogether or leaving ways of viewing God, I think you have to leave those views of God because they're not healthy. And so I want to speak against that because for many people that are part of this community, that has become a major stumbling block for them to have faith. Now, I think there are a lot of people who are uh, connected to various forms of Calvinism, and it doesn't affect them. I don't think everyone are are having to wrestle with those same sort of ideas, and it's not it's not an issue for many people. And that's why I've got nothing but love for Calvinists, uh, even if I'm not a fan of Calvinism. I mean, the the church planner that I was probably closest to in the uh, the whole Dallas Fort Worth area where I used to live when I was a, a church planner, uh, the one that I was closest to was a member of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network. He was a Calvinist guy himself, and we were able to have. Uh, a very tight relationship. This guy practiced hospitality. He was very welcoming and generous towards me and the church plant that I was a part of, uh, even though we, we had major differences on how we understood God in text. But that doesn't mean we couldn't have community with one another. And so, again, like that's, that's what I hope the podcast can represent, that it's not this, uh, this niche market of people who are just reacting against something, and, and that's the rallying call, is that they have a common enemy, which is the way it often works. But instead, l- let's try to see the best in this, because we're all, we're all in this together. Uh, okay, that, uh, question number one. Uh, let's go to question number two. This is from Aaron in Georgia. What advice can you give to marriages when one person changes from a conservative Christian to a progressive and the other stays the same? My husband and I agreed on almost everything when we got married, and I have since changed to accept evolution, gender equality, gay marriage, etc. It deeply disturbs him and has caused a lot of pain, confusion, and friction to the point I've wished I could go back to my old way of thinking, but just can't. Any advice on how to coexist peacefully and still feel known and loved? Uh, that's a good question, and I would assume that there are a lot of people who could co-sign this one. Uh, I assume this is an um, experience that, uh, that many people have had. Uh, I, I think all good theology leads us to love the people who are in front of you. Knowledge puffs up, love builds up. Love is always working to connect us. Uh, and to to get us to be connected to those around us. And if all good theology leads us to love the people in front of us, there is no better testing ground for your good theology than loving your spouse. I mean, that's the centerpiece of it. And I I mean, I think ideally you would 
you would have similar convictions as the person you're married to, but that that doesn't always happen. And you know the stuff that you mentioned with um, evolution, with uh, gender equality, uh, with uh, questions about the LGBTQ community. Um, those are pretty uh, pretty big ones, I think. Uh, I, I would assume if you guys are parenting a child who is uh, a part of the LGBTQ community and you have different ideological convictions on that, uh, I mean, that's a pretty substantial issue that I, I would encourage. Let's go, let's, let's find some counseling. Let's find some professionals to help you work through that together. Cause that's, um, I mean, that's a real uh, obstacle that I don't know how uh, a couple would overcome that if they had two different responses for how to parent a child uh, and their sexual identity. I, I mean, that's just overwhelming. Um, but but if this is something that's at arm's length, like it's more uh, philosophically, okay, how do we, we treat our neighbors? How do we treat maybe a distant relative or just friends? Um, yeah, I mean, that's um, that's still difficult, but it's not the same as co-parenting uh, someone that has a different conviction on sexuality than you. But I, I think, first of all, obviously, it starts by listening to each other. And I'm just kind of assuming that this has been a long process. And let's just assume that you've done that. Uh, You know where he's coming from, which is what I can kind of surmise if you grew up in the same position where he was in uh, at the beginning of your marriage. So you you probably know his arguments. You probably know where he's coming from. And I assume he probably knows where you're coming from too. I I assume that you guys have had lots of conversations about this. Um, What the ultimate conclusion I would recommend is is that your job is not to convert your spouse. Your job is to love them. And if you're trying to convert them to your, your worldview and, and vice versa, it's not always a genuine conversion. And I know that there, there's probably part of you that really thinks this is a better way of, of seeing things. And I would, you know, I think a, a non-antagonistic view of faith and science is a better way to view things. I think... Uh, respecting the giftings that God gives all people, not just men, uh, is a better way to live. I agree with that. But if you're trying to convert someone to your worldview and it's your spouse, there is a temptation for that conversion to be really less about what's best for them and more about the eradication of the cognitive dissonance in which you live in. So your conversion is really more about you no longer having that that pain in your life because your spouse disagrees with you. And so I I don't think your job is as much to convert them as to love exactly who they are, which includes them having different convictions than you on on certain issues that are pretty important. When, when I was um, going through grad school, maybe I was just ending up uh, finishing up undergrad. One of uh, the people I looked up to a great deal was blogging about something, and he throws this kind of uh, aside comment into uh, a piece that he was writing, in which he spoke about how he and his wife would never have the same political views. And it, he, it wasn't a part of his argument, he wasn't really building on it, he just kind of threw it out there. And it stuck with me because I never would imagine that a husband and wife would would disagree on something like that. I just figure, oh, you're married, you guys will all have the same views, and you know, it's not the case. And I, I had a conversation with someone not too long ago whose parents, same situation. You know, every four years, uh, they go to the ballots, and one picks the right, one picks the left, and yet they still have a healthy, uh, thriving marriage that has lasted for decades. And I feel like that's the example that, that you need to look to. Like, there are other people 
who have had um, pluralities of opinions on important things within a marriage and it still worked. And I think it's loving who they are, not what you want them to be. And I think in marriage, you know, the question isn't, you know, God, why didn't you give me this spouse that, that fits X, Y, and Z that I want? But instead, the question is, God, have I been faithful with loving the person that's in front of me? And loving the person in front of you means that you love them even uh, when there's disagreements. And I, I really, I, I deeply hope and pray uh, that it's not a parenting issue because when it comes to how you raise your kid, uh, I mean, that's a, I, I have no idea for how to navigate those waters. But if it's more uh, at arm's length, I, I can really commiserate with the idea that you wish you wouldn't have gone through uh, your faith journey that led you into a different place than your spouse, because in some ways it would have been easier. And it definitely, like, I, I get that. But you are where you are, and you're called to love who you're, who you're with. So um, I, I think accepting who they are is, uh, is probably what that journey looks like for you. Um, but I'm not a marriage counselor, so I, <laughs> don't, I, don't, I don't claim for that to be the thing that's going to help you. But it's just my idea. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. And this is Ian from Philadelphia, my, the place where I was born, West Philadelphia. That's where I was born and raised. The playground's where I spent most of my days. Uh, I don't know if Ian's done that, but I did that for sure. And by that, I mean I watched The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and learned the intro song. Okay, on to the question from Ian from Philly. Regarding process theology... I often hear process theologians and progressive theologians in general concerned that more, quote, traditional theologies depict God as angry and bloodthirsty and say things like, God must be at least as friendly as Jesus. However, Jesus talks a lot about about people being condemned to hell, Hades, etc., and in harsh terms. Is sending someone to hell somehow less violent than ordering Israelites to kill women and children? All right, let's start with, uh, that's kind of a two-part thing in my, my, uh, my opinion. Uh, the first part is God has to be as friendly as Jesus, which is something that I would, uh, I would co-sign. I agree. I think Jesus uh, is the best picture we have of who God is. And so if you're going to ask any question about what is God like, you do not start uh, with the Old Testament. You start with Jesus. Uh, in the Old Testament, you have uh, the text that I think were uh, in the background of this question, uh, the conquest narratives, the places where God told the Israelites to kill every foreigner, like every, every enemy, uh, anyone living in the land, which includes the military participants along with those who are innocent bystanders, uh, including children. And that's, that's horrifying, thinking that that's who God is. And if that's where you start, then God is, you know, God's going to look like a monster if... Uh, a few years uh, a few years ago, I read um, a great book called uh, Killing Pablo. It's a book about Pablo Escobar, and he's got this uh, line where uh, you know Pablo's kind of his I don't know if it's like his catchphrase or not. It's kind of terrible to think of like a, a terrible villain with a catchphrase, but his catchphrase was like Plata Oploma, which um, I don't think I said that correctly in Spanish. Actually, I did that once at a um, I was speaking for some college students, and afterwards. A uh, uh, Hispanic uh, student walked up and said, "Yeah, I think you were trying to say silver or lead, which is what I think Plata Oploma is supposed to mean." And she goes, "Yeah, instead you said uh, platter, uh, silver platter or something." And I was like, "Yeah, I, I, I'm not a 
Spanish expert. But anyway, so he's got this catchphrase, like silver or lead, either accept me right now, take my silver, or you will get the lead. And that's what Pablo Escobar did. He killed hundreds of police officers, politicians, judges, uh, media personality, all these people because they didn't take his, his gold and they didn't take his silver and they didn't take his bribes for them to be indebted to him. And uh, I was reading that book at the same time I saw some tweet by someone that said, accept Jesus now as your savior or he will return as your judge. And I thought, wow, that sounds a lot like Plata Oploma. Like, accept God now, get his silver, or one day he'll return and give you the lead. And I go, man, that makes God sound like a monster, the way of viewing God that way. And I think you can read some Old Testament text and go, God is pretty monstrous if that's where you start, okay? And so I think the response to that is, let's always start with Jesus. Like, Jesus is the best way to understand God. You know, that's, I mean, you, you find Paul talking about that, where he talks about in Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled. You, you know, this is John 1. Uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Through him, all things that have been made were made in him. Like, like this is, he, he's all of it. Um, which means you start with Jesus, and then those those texts of terror are secondary pieces that you're working not as those being your first lens, but those are the secondary pieces that you interpret Jesus, Jesus' life through, right? So those those are things that go, well, does that really match Jesus? Okay, well, maybe there's other ways of understanding what's happening here. And that's what, uh, like some of PDN's stuff that's been helpful on, okay, his language is a Christocentric lens. Like, let's start with Jesus, and then maybe some other stuff's going on with those texts. Now, uh, so yes, let's view everything through Jesus. Now, your second part of that question, Mr. Philadelphia, is, but doesn't Jesus do some pretty harsh things himself? So if we're trying to get rid of these texts of terror by saying Jesus is the best way to understand God, but Jesus himself does some harsh things, uh, aren't we still kind of in this conundrum? Uh, the response to that is, I, I think your um, assumption that there is a uniformed understanding of those harsh teachings of Jesus would probably not be substantiated that well. I think there's a lot of other opinions on exactly what Jesus was doing when he talks about, um, you know, being thrown into you know fire and gnashing of teeth and uh, Hades. And was Jesus talking about Dante's Inferno's description of hell, or is Jesus talking about like a a garbage dump outside of town? And I think there's some interesting discussion that can be made there. Uh, I, I don't know if. Um, if I would hold uh, to Dante's version of hell uh, in the same way that maybe I would hold to um, like C.S. Lewis, Lewis's take that, you know, if you always say my will, not your will, God, eventually God's going to give you what you want. And if you don't want to be in relation with God, which I think, I think all love requires freedom. And if you choose, I don't want to be with you, God, then God's going to say, okay, in the end, you can go be without me. And without God, I don't think is a place where there's any goodness. So I'm not opposed to that idea, but I think some of Jesus's harsh language uh, might be softened with maybe a little bit more uh, understanding of maybe what he's doing in the first century and how that would be understood. Um, So yeah, that's my take on it. Um, Next question. This is from Greenlee, Colorado. Our friend Jeff Cook, former guest on the show, Jeff Cook, our favorite philosopher slash pastor. Uh, And so his question is about uh, being a pastor. Um, Let's read it. He says, 
I'd love to hear someone speak about the role of the pastor in the community. I like that he didn't say, Luke, I want to hear you speak. I just want to hear someone speak about it. Well, Jeff, that someone is me. He says, is the pastor more like, one, a doctor slash therapist who serves but cannot be emotionally close? Two, a father who is clear who is a clear authority and oversees the rest of the family but is part of the family? Three, a fellow brother among equals. I find I am in situations where people who I counseled and baptized became my close friends, then became an elder, and then became my boss. Relationships under, then beside, then above. How does one navigate the role of the pastor in the community? Okay, uh, two things. Uh, let's go to the second part first. Like, How do you deal with when you've, you brought someone, uh, you were a central part of their conversion into faith? And then you uh, find yourself now as their employee because in the church stru- structure that you're in, uh, they can be your boss. Well, one, I would give you kudos for creating a system where other people are your boss that give you accountability because not every church planner does that. Not every church leader creates environments in which they are going to be held accountable. Now, here's the thing that you've done. You've made for awkward relationships for yourself, Jeff. And it, it is weird, right? Like you baptize them, you now are reporting to them. You probably have thought about church and things of Jesus substantially longer than them just because you were you baptized them, which means you've been a Christian for longer than them. Now they're your boss. That is a weird thing. But the other side of that is if you didn't have those sort of accountable relationships, it would be awkward for everyone. And as the leader of the church, you have taken taken on the awkwardness. Because if you didn't have any accountability, everyone else would feel awkward whenever you acted out, right? So, And I assume you're not going to act out, but we do have plenty of examples of clergy doing that. And so in turn, you have taken on the awkwardness and the uncomfortable relationships that prevent others in the church from having to deal with it. And so, like, I hate that for you, Jeff, but that's kind of the world that we're in, where, where we have to we as pastors, and this podcast isn't just for pastors, but obviously there are plenty who, who do listen. Um, you either choose to, to make the, the, the relationships awkward for yourself, or it's going to make the church just awkward because there's no accountability up top. Okay, now the first part of the question then is, what is a pastor like? Um, you gave three examples. Uh, it was the doctor therapist, uh, the father, uh, or the brother. Um, I think it kind of depends on church sizes, there's different dynamics with different sized churches. And knowing Jeff, I know he's from a church that is similar to the church that I was a part of back in Denton. That's a smaller church that has more of a familial experience for everyone involved, where you know everyone, they know what's going on in your life, you know what's going on in their life. And so there's probably a very much brother-sister kind of thing that everyone can share in. And by that, I mean... People know your hangups, you know their hangups, and there is a more egalitarian relationship. Now, as church dynamics change, that's just that's just not an option for everyone. And the larger the church is, um, people in some ways are um, are giving up that sort of familial effect with the entire congregation. Many churches still have that. Uh, in in subsets of the congregation, like small groups or or like a Bible class or something, but you've changed that out. And so, what I think that dynamic looks like then is, 
um, your job is to be the model, the example of someone who lives out the way of Jesus, but you have to do it in a way that's accessible uh, so that people aren't discrediting your leadership. And so this is what this is how I would draw the distinction. It's the distinction between wounds and scars. A pastor needs to be vulnerable and deal with the issues that they have, but they don't deal with the issues uh, in a Sunday morning sermon as though it's a counseling session. When you get up to preach, it's not your opportunity to work through your issues in front of everyone um, because you're the pastor, you're not a, a psychologist's patient at the time. And so that's the difference in wounds and scars. When, when you are dealing with your honest humanity, deal with the issues of your, in your life that are now scars, not the ones that are open wounds still. And so you need to let there be healing before you come back and discuss it. I, I was reading... Um, uh, Stephen Pressfield, who is uh, kind of like an, uh, a guru for, for writers, and he's, he's written a lot of good stuff. Um, the War of Art is probably his most popular nonfiction. And uh, he was writing something about how when you're doing um, storytelling, uh, typically your character is going to be similar to you. And if you are writing in the midst of some struggle in life, um, the character is not going to be who it needs to be because you need to be writing about the issues that you've already worked through. Your, your wounds need to turn into scars before you can write about it. I think the same is true as a pastor. Like You need to be honest about your struggles, but you need um, to have healing before you're giving it out to everyone else. Now, inside of that church community, there also needs to be places for you to deal with your wounds in an honest and confessional way with people. Um, you don't need to be removed, but I think there is, um, in a smaller church, I think it's more accessible for you to deal with wounds. Um, I think in a bigger church, you need to be more considerate of where those communities are that you deal with your wounds. Uh, and maybe when it's more on the larger stage, it's just scars. So I would say if I had to pick one of those options, the doctor, therapist, uh, a father, or the brother, I think you need to be brothers and sisters in certain parts of your community. Um, but in, uh, in the larger setting, I think you need to be the doctor, the therapist, because you don't want to go into the doctor's office and you're like, Hey, I've got this issue. And your doctor, she's like, yeah, well, I got this rash too. Let's look at mine. Like, no, you, you want them uh, to be able to help you in that setting. And I think that's probably, uh, what people's first experience need to be. So, um, Jeff Cook, keep up the good work. Watch out for those sociologists in your church. That's, they're always trouble, always trouble. Um, Side note, Jeff, I met someone at my church this week who has a kid who's going to be going to University of North Colorado, uh, which is where you teach. So let's talk about that sometime. Um, I just made that this a personal message to you. So there you go, Jeff. Um, okay, the next one is a question about Midrash. Uh, I got it on the old Facebook, and um, someone want to know, hey, we're, you're always talking about Midrash. What do you mean by that? Um, Okay, uh, Midrash is an understanding of how Jews in the first century would understand text, which is not the same way that the 21st century, which has been informed by um, uh, literary criticism uh, and, and other things that have given us lenses in, through which we read text in a more scientific approach uh, in the first century. Um, when Paul is quoting Old Testament, he's not really worried about original authorial intent. 
He is worried about communicating his point, and so he's going to take a very poetic use of Old Testament, and he's going to play fast and loose with it in the way that if you did that in a Bible class uh, in college or, or in seminary, the professor would say that you're taken out of context, because Paul's main concern is not uh, authorial intent or the, the initial uh, message as it would have been in understood by the first audience as much as Paul is concerned with communicating his point. And what I think that's important for is when I first started preaching, I felt like I was hamstrung and there was only one right way to preach a text and that there's no uh, living or fresh interpretations of text that I have since found because I've seen that's what Paul does. And if Paul, who wrote the New Testament, the majority of it, uh, uses the Old Testament that way, uh, shouldn't I follow Paul's use of text when I use the text that Paul's written? So uh, that's what I mean by Midrash. For more information, uh, I don't know, talk to some Old Testament scholar. Talk to, I'm sure Pete Dance has got some stuff on Midrash somewhere. Um, yeah, so there we go. Um, this last one um, from a friend of mine named Brooke here in Texas. Um, it's a fair question. Uh, why is it that on the podcast since September, you have had over 30 conversations with white men compared with two black men, both of whom were on with a white man, and four women, two in one show, one with a man, and only one whom was the only guest? Uh, that is a very fair question. And the answer is because I, uh, it's an oversight. I, I, Got the message, looked at what you said, and uh, and you're right. Um, definitely been pretty homogenous on the old guests, and that's not my intent. Uh, it is a good reminder that as a white man who grew up in churches that are often white, that went and studied with a lot of other uh, white men who are now preachers, that... Uh, it's very easy for me to just revert back to my friends and having them on the podcast. And uh, yeah, I don't want it to be just a white guy party. And that is, I think, one of the fair critiques of podcasts in general, that it's just middle-class white guys talking. And yeah, I would hope uh, that uh, the work I do uh, as a pastor uh, and also secondarily as a podcaster would work towards reflecting the diversity that God intends for in this world and the type of diversity that the community the kingdom of heaven is all about and yeah i i uh, since september i have not been doing a great job of that so um yeah i'll be working on that uh thank you for the old feedback on that one brooke from austin texas and i think that's it i think we got them all I'm looking through the old uh, computer here and i think it's it all right, well, um, I'm going to go get some donuts with my daughters, and you all know one thing. I appreciate you listening. Thank you. It has been uh, an absolute honor to be a part of this community and for you all to uh, support the podcast, so thank you for your questions. Uh, thank you for your reviews. Uh, yeah, like the reviews on the old uh, iTunes, which they're always helpful. Like If you haven't done that, uh, I, I do appreciate it. Let me read. Uh, one of these comments I just saw the other day, and this is from a guy named Peter Steggerwald. wrote this back in January. He said, I wanted to get my four-day-old son off to a good podcasting start. Side note, 
That's what every good parent should be doing. Get your four-year-old kid off to a good podcasting start. So this is what he did, Peter says. So I turned on the latest Stormant Wrap-Up podcast, exclamation, thanks for making a difference in my son's life. Jonathan, if he ends up with your faith and Luke's hair, I'll consider it a win. Yeah, I'll take that. Jonathan has a lot of faith, um, partly because there's a lot of big words and books that he doesn't understand, so it's difficult for him to intellectualize his understanding of God, so it's mostly just kind of word of faith kind of stuff for him. And yeah, I would hope that uh, every kid has a faith like Jonathan's. And one would say that most of Jonathan's stuff is very childish, so it would be a perfect mentor for most children. And obviously, we'd love for your kid to have hair like mine. I think that's... um, that's a great goal. I, I think one of the things that you got to be careful as a parent is you don't want to put too big of expectations on your kids. And uh, so be careful with that. Uh, it, it might lead to shame and some other um, unhealthy stuff down the road. But um, if my wife would have heard me just do that riff about my hair, she would have probably stabbed me. And that's why she doesn't listen uh, to the old wrap-up or the uh, mailbags because she doesn't want to hear that stuff. And that's probably the right thing to do for her. But it is the right thing for you guys to do to keep listening. I think thank all of you ladies and gentlemen who listen, and uh, hopefully this month uh, we'll get Brueggemann back on. Uh, he sent me an old email that maybe in a couple of weeks we'll get him back on the podcast. We'll get to hear from him. And um, yeah, I've got some other stuff I think you're going to be excited about for this month. That uh, one returning guest and uh, one, yeah, from out in the world of, anyway, you'll, you'll see Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. You are now adjourned.